This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversations about difficult subjects. Tonight is the third in our series about families and mental illness. First week, I talked to Liz Brenner about her dad's bipolar disorder, and last week, I talked to Alicia Barnes about her brother, schizophrenia. And I'm speaking this week with Valerie Gamache about her mom, who had bipolar disorder. And the context for the show is that the history of the mental health system in relation to families is, has been quite a checkered one, I would say. Families have been blamed. Families have been excluded. And families, I think, have been excluded from care while expecting to carry all the responsibility at the same time. Valerie is very active in the National Alliance on Mental Illness, which has been working to try to improve some of that. So let me tell you a little bit about Valerie Gamache. She's the president and the founding member of the Bath and Brunswick affiliate of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. We call it NAMI. Valerie has taught 23 12-week family-to-family educational classes over the past 18 years. She's been a devoted advocate uh, to reducing stigma and learning more about mental illness. She also does outreach to families on the mental health unit at Midcoast Hospital in Brunswick. And in 2008, she received the Heroes in the Fight Award from NAMI. Welcome to Safe Space. Thank you. So I want to hear a little bit about your family separate from mental illness. Tell me a little bit about who's in your family and just give us a feel. Well, um, I grew up with um, three other siblings. I have two sisters and I had a brother. Uh, We were pretty typical. I'm married uh, with a husband who lived in Freeport and we raised five children. Let's see. We have four girls and one boy, and my son's out in Arizona. We miss him terribly, and I'm very fortunate to have all the girls right around us in uh, in the area. Oh, nice. Yeah. So your mom had bipolar disorder, and I'd love it if maybe to start you could tell us a little bit about what that looked like for her, because bipolar disorder varies so much. Give us just a sense of how the illness expressed itself in your mom. Uh, originally, mom was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Uh, she had committed or tried to commit suicide uh, when we were just very young. I was probably, I think, four or five, um, and she was admitted to Amhi. Um, I went to live with my aunt and uncle in Massachusetts, and um, it wasn't until many years later she was re-diagnosed with bipolar illness. Mum was what we would would call a rapid cycler, uh, which means she had multiple events. Um, I would leave for school uh, in the morning, and she would be, you know, depressed, couldn't get out of bed. And then by the evening when I got home, she would be in a full rage. Um, her manias were very, very violent, very angry. And it was very confusing for a kid and for a family to watch her um, go through these cycles so quickly. So for her, it was a very tough cycle to watch because she didn't remember a lot of what happened, but would see the aftermath. Um, And so that was, you know, I guess very poignant for our family. Yes, and very confusing for her, I would imagine, because she'd see you guys all upset but then wouldn't quite remember what she'd done to trigger that. No, and I think that's what really helped our family sort of uh, come around to understanding that this was certainly um, a serious illness, a serious mental illness, 
and helped us really separate the person from the illness because when you have someone who um, at one moment could be so caring and so sweet, um, you know, at one instance and then fly off and not really recognize um, this person in the next, um, it's very frightening and it's very hard for um, the the family to understand and certainly very difficult for the one who's experiencing it. um, you know, I have told this story before with um, mom's behaviors were so erratic and um, she was incredibly um, difficult to sort of work with and, and she had um, would fly off the handle if something didn't go quite right for her and I had um, happened to be in the crosshair um, at one point and she had, you know, I was doing dishes and she came through and was very upset and hit me um, and it was during the summer and I certainly had these little finger marks all over my back and she had gone through the house and came back and she had looked at me and said what happened to you? Who did that? that was sort of that eye-opening experience for me as a young teen to say how can someone react in such a really violent way and truly not remember it you know minutes later that's the story I guess you know of my early age of watching this illness take away someone's core essence take away the person that can be so caring and sweet and Um, You know, my mom loved babies and to see her interact on such a real personal manner and then, uh, you know, lash out so violently um, and not really be able to bring it back into context that it was something that she was there for. I imagine that if I try to picture myself as you as that teenager, that you must have been so frightened of her but for both reasons. A, because she hit you, but also because... Then she was so so immediately not remembering that it was so confusing. It was confusing. It also, I think, pulled at your heartstrings to think, you know, put yourself in her situation. You know, she's she's lost so much in in her self identity, and you're looking at raising a family. You're looking at the process that she's gone through um, of having four children, of being taken away of not remembering and feeling so out of control and to have folks that are telling her, you know, Terry, this isn't, this isn't you, this is something else, and not being able to sort of bring it to, to terms that she could understand. Or, or to even know that she'd hurt the, the people that she loved the most. Right. Well, and difficult. I think that's pretty typical. Um, in all the years that I've been involved, um, the the families that I've dealt with or, or in, our, in our own situation. Um, our fam- individuals, when they're in that psychotic state, when they're in that um, full rage, they're often, they take it out or they're a- often times react the poorest to those that they feel the safest with. Um, in our family, that was very much true. Um, and, and given how sort of volatile it sounded like she could be, um, did you come back to live with her? Fairly? How long were you separated living with your aunt and uncle? I was only there, I think, for probably six months or so. Uh, I was actually just thinking about that coming out for this. Um, I was out there for, I think it was a little over six months um, time frame. 
And so then she came back to live with you. Yep. My dad was, you know, back during that era, and let's put this into context, this was the early 60s. Um, the diagnosis was initially made, and, you know, it was the era where the family physician said, you know, Mickey, put her in the hospital. You've got four young children. You need to move on, take care of, uh, put your family back together, take care of them. It just never felt right. You know, I can remember talking to my dad years later, and he was saying it would have been far easier. He said, but that's not what I got married for. That's, you know, it, it wasn't the New England way, you know, big, stubborn New England man he was. So he did bring her back. Um, and again, you know, when we look at my older siblings and I talk about that experience, um, it was an era where, well, she's out of the hospital. Okay, everything must be fine again. And they don't talk about it. They don't sort of look at ongoing care. It was um, release them from the hospital, put them back in their community. And in our case, there was no ongoing care. So she, you know, was on medications. There were um, the typical family dynamics that continued. You know, she did the best she could to raise the family up until um, the early 70s when, you know, things had gotten progressively um, worse. Uh, her sleeping pattern, her behaviors were becoming far more challenging. And the hospitalization happened that um, really was a catalyst to getting the care and the treatment she ultimately um, needed and really deserved. I mean, these illnesses are so um, treated so poorly that we need to remember that, you know, even though she came out of the hospital, um, there was an ongoing care. And with any illness, it's so important with a diagnosis that there's ongoing care. So it took us a while. Um, but well, not just only for the person's sake, but for her family's sake. Absolutely. I mean, you as a child growing up would have benefited so much if she had been in care, I imagine. Well, I, I think our whole family would have benefited. Um, but I also think... It was a much harsher and harder process for mom to go through mm -hmm. um, when, you know, she continued to feel, I think, for many years that people blamed her, um, that she didn't understand what was happening, didn't see it, and was just trying to do the very best. Um, so it, it, it's a tough disease. It's a tough disease for the individual to have. It's a tough disease for all the folks who love and care for them. Um, so we were very fortunate as a family to get her into treatment um, Again, it was in the 70s, uh, but it was several hospitalizations. Um, we would get her going in the right direction, and sometimes, you know, it's part of the disease process. Um, she'd go off her medications, and, you know, we as a family learned very quickly what her pattern looked like, what the early warning signs were, and we became very proactive, not because we had a healthcare system around us that was saying, oh, by all means, pick up the phone and call me if you have questions or you have an issue. We really had to learn that the hard way. Hmm. And how much did your family talk about this? I mean, you grew up, this kind of thing was going on. Were you, as a group, talking a lot about it amongst yourselves? Was your father helping you understand what was going on? Um, you know, my 
poor dad. You know, he dealt with a lot of guilt for many, many years. Um, he was the one that mom blamed the most uh, for for locking her up, quote unquote. And dad, you know, unfortunately, I think um, agreed or, or accepted that guilt. I mean, he carried it with him for a long time. Um, so we as a family unit, the four kids tended to... Um, talk amongst ourselves. My older siblings were, um, had already left by then. I had, my oldest sister was away in the service and my, the second, uh, sister, second to the oldest was in college, but she became very, um, she was very helpful, uh, to my brother and I. Um, she was home as much as she could, but was also a sounding board. You know, this is where we're at. This is what we're, you know, what we're seeing. Um, so we really had very much a tag team approach. Um, you know, I became the primary caretaker for mom. It was um, helpful, you know, when mom's illness would flare. You know, my brother was a typical um, boy in the family. I used to say he was spoiled rotten. Um, and sometimes it would, didn't matter what he said to mom, just having his presence. Um, he was also a lot stronger. And so if it was a time that we needed to get mom back into the hospital um, because her um, illness had become unmanaged again, she was off her meds, it was important to have that safety net around you. And even though I advocate that if things get scary and you're concerned about safety, you know, we need to pick up the telephone and call at 911. For our family, we were fortunate enough um, to be able to take care of things um, with with just the family, the immediate family. So you've used the phrase the big secret in terms of how your family did and did not share it with other people. So it sounds like within your family, your sister and brother, you know, especially really helped you. But I'd love to hear how much did you talk about it with others? How much did your community Uh support you? Tell me about that. Well, you know, I've said all along that it was the big secret. We spent an enormous amount of time and energy uh, making sure that no one knew what was happening at home. I'll give you an example. Um, I really was shocked, but I had gone through high school. It was was preparing for graduation and typical... typical kids talking with my friends and a gentleman, a young man that I was friends with for years said, who's coming to graduation? And I said, well, you know, my mom and my dad and my family. And he stopped dead in his tracks and said, your mom's alive. And I was like, yeah. I said, what do you mean? He says, in all the years I've known you, you've never once mentioned your mom. He didn't realize how protective we became or I became um, until that very moment. I, I almost felt guilty. He said, you talk about your dad, you talk about your brother, but I just assumed that she was dead. That's so poignant. And he didn't, of course, ask because he assumed if she was dead, it would be so tender a subject. Right. Yeah. And so do you think that you wanted to tell me about the 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 force you felt inside yourself about why it was important to to pretend that nothing bad was going on. Why was it important to conceal it? What was at stake? You know, I could live in my house, in my home, and I could see the scary parts, but it was my family. 
it really, it was almost a protective mechanism that I didn't want anyone to see the mom that wasn't the typical Aussie and Harriet mom. You know, I didn't want anyone to think badly of her because I didn't understand. They wouldn't understand that this isn't a choice for her, that she had a disease that um, took away her ability to make good choices, to take, that took away um, who she was for those periods. And if they met her for such a short glimpse of time and her behavior was frightening or mean or scary, that's not what I wanted them to be left with. And I didn't want, you know, it was so important for me on one hand to protect her, but it was also important for me to have that safety net and that distance. Um, So we didn't let a lot of folks in. We didn't let, um, there were very few friends of mine that I brought home because you just couldn't tell, you know, where she would be at at that time. And I really want to emphasize that she really was a very kind and sweet lady. Um, Right, who had a terrible illness. Yeah. 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 You, I know there are other stories and other countless stories that you have of times where you did reveal that she had bipolar disorder and you did, in fact, encounter discrimination. And I wondered if you might tell me a couple of stories about what that was like for you to encounter that. Well, there, unfortunately, I'd like to say, oh, it never happened, but it happened um, often. Um, One of the um, early early opportunities or early uh, instances, I guess. Um, my dad was very um, concerned and we, we had to have some work done at the house uh, and the, on the furnace. And my father uh, called and said, you know, the oil company won't come and service uh, the furnace unless someone else is there. And I said, what do you mean? He said, they won't come to the house unless I'm there or someone else is there with your mother. How did the oil company know? I mean, what, what was the history there? Apparently, um, they had come out at one point, and Mom presented in um, uh, not an appropriate attire. And I think it made them very uncomfortable, or she was um, having auditory hallucinations, and so she was, um, you know, a little frightening. Um, we had, you know, and... I want to clarify that these are the you know stories on the early days, um, as we, as a family, learned um, how to help mom stay well. Um, there were still those instances where we found folks that certainly should have known better, um, who were so disrespectful. Mom had broken her hip probably ten years ago, and we were in the emergency room talking to. Um, the surgeon who was getting the information on her medications and I was, you know, listing them off and said, you know, overall, she's really pretty healthy. I mean, other than the bipolar illness. And the surgeon, you know, as he's writing down the information I had given him, his comment was, oh, so just the crazies. And I thought, wait a minute. And I really, it, it made me stop in my tracks. And, and I really, I said to him, you know, I find that really offensive. She has a brain disease. It's called bipolar. And this is from a professional that should have known better. When we look at our society, when we look at um, 
folks who don't have the um, education, that don't have the experience to understand these illnesses, we certainly wouldn't expect that from a doctor. And it happens. So, so one can appreciate, in a way, why the, the pressure to be silent, it, was not, it doesn't come from nothing. No. Um, and yet I know you have reached out now to so many families who are going through this sort of early process of coming to terms with a family member who has a brain disease, has a mental illness. And I know that you do a lot of work around speaking up and creating contexts where people can talk about it and... What do you say to them about that, about how to do it or what makes a difference or why it's important to talk about this in more public ways? One of the things that I've stressed over um, all the years is that this is a disease like any other disease. It is biologically based. We need to be able to start convincing even our own immediate families that it's okay. It's a no-fault illness. Until we are able to, and what I say to other families in our family-to-family class is that if we're okay with it, we need to be able to share the experiences and put it out there as an illness so that other folks will acknowledge that. If we continue to allow folks, just like the surgeon that I talked about earlier, if we allow them to make it less than to make it a choice, then we're doing a disservice to the folks that, that our families, you know, to our family member, to um, you know, other folks who are you know, trying to get help for their loved ones. Or if, you're having a, if you have a diagnosis yourself, you don't want to be identified as your diagnosis. You, know, you are who you are. You also have a disease. And that's where we need to really stop and allow... Or, or demand, I, I, maybe a better choice, is to demand that folks recognize it as a disease. Um, we have so many folks. We have a wonderful woman in Portland that um, does uh, training for the family to family. She talks about the fact that with her family member, no one brought her a casserole. You know, she had another family member who was ill and uh, with cancer, and they got casseroles and they got desserts and they had people cleaning the house. And she speaks so eloquently and said, but no one once called and asked how her son was doing. No one once brought a casserole. Um, that speaks volumes. It does. And so what you say, I thought was really powerful. You say, when if I'm okay with it, then they'll be okay with it. So if I communicate, if I talk about this from this place of not being ashamed, then that is sort of contagious in a way than people. But that's no small feat, what you're saying. And I'm curious if you're willing to share for yourself personally, how did you move from this place where your family didn't talk about it and you kind of closed ranks and, you know, were this tight-knit team? How did you move to the place where you were okay with it? How did you work with any shame that you felt about it? What helped you? Well, to tell you the honest truth, I had seen um, the advertisement, the first advertisement I ever saw on the NAMI Family to Family class. And although at that stage, I thought I had come a long ways. I thought, you know, I understood um, what was happening for mom, but I took the course. And having sat with um, a group of 20 other 
individuals all talking about this disease process, I realized how many folks were stuck in this place of um, being afraid to let anyone know, and it was eating them up. You know, for me personally, I had to stop and say, look, if I don't get control of my own reaction to these illnesses and build that confidence or that those healthy boundaries around myself and around this illness, um, I'm not going to be there when she really does need me on the long haul. Because these illnesses are not, um, unfortunately, they're lifelong diseases. Um, we learn to manage them, but they don't go away. So I started working with um, my immediate family and working with my mom to say, you know what, mom, we're going to approach this on a team approach because I know that you'd be there for me if I had a serious um, long-term illness that I couldn't handle on my own. And it was opening up to say, there's going to be times that, you know, I may do something you don't like, but you're going to trust, you need to trust me. That is because I love you to death, that I want to be there for you. And we're going we're gonna to get through this together. So, um, Valerie, we're going to have to stop in a minute. And so I want to just ask you to tell me a little bit more about this family-to-family class that you've taught, that it sounds like it had such a pivotal role for you. Just tell me briefly if someone wants to learn more about it or, or is thinking about whether they might want to be part of it. Just tell me what, what, what it is and what it does. Um, the 12-week family ed program is a free offering. It allows individuals to learn about uh, what goes into a diagnosis, what are the common treatments, um, what are the medications, what are the side effects to those medications, what a crisis management looks like, how do you de-escalate um, when our family members are out of control, um, communication skills. It is offered throughout the state of Maine. If anyone is interested in um, taking the course, they can contact the NAMI Maine office at their 1-800 number. Why don't you give me that number? It's 1-800-464-5767. And they Why don't can, you say it one more time? <laughs> 1-800-464-5767. And they can get on a waiting list or find out where the next class is being offered. It's offered throughout the state of Maine um, and actually throughout all of the 50 states. And they're taught or led by family members who, like you, right? Yes. Who've been through it. And I imagine that on top of all the content you just listed, is there time for people to share and Absolutely. get support and problem solve? And Absolutely. Um, there are several workshops. Um, there's an empathy workshop. There is a um, communication workshop where we talk about... Um, so, and there's another workshop that I think is just so valuable, and it really looks at the family dynamics and what are the struggles if you are, for example, the adult child or if you're the spouse or you're the parent. Um, it allows a lot of interaction for the participants to learn about um, how they're dealing with the illness and really bringing it back to a self-care perspective. It's a great program. Uh, it, it must be. <laughs> We've been doing it all these years. So the last thing I want to ask you is you said, and just I'm going to said one or two sentences, Valerie. You said, I so much want to share what we've learned as a family so that other people don't have to go through it. And what would be just sort of the heart of that that you want to make sure that you can share with other families? I want them to remember the family member. 
I want them to understand that their family member, as frightening as they may be at times, they're still there. And it's a disease. It's not a choice. Um, I hear over and over from um, families that say, you know, they just need to do this or they just need to do that. You know, they need to get a job, whatever. Um, It's not a choice. If they could, they would. And you need to remember that. Valerie Gamash, thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space. Thank you. And if people want to go to the NAMI website, what is that? Um, it's www.naminemain.org. M-A-I-N-E? Correct. Dot org. Wonderful. My thanks tonight to Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound, Maurice Lennon for the music. If you would like to listen to the show in its entirety or email a link to it to a friend, please go to our website, which is www.safespaceradio.com. I would invite you there to sign up to get a weekly announcement for all the future shows that are going to be about families and mental illness. And also, if you'd like to download the show to your smartphone for your morning commute, you can do so through iTunes. You can also like us on Facebook. Next week, I will be speaking to Cheryl Ramsey, who also works with the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Coming up next is The Watchdog.